Thank you for listening to the podcast of Bible Baptist Church. Please visit our website at www.southbaybbc.org for more information. This two-word sentence describes an emotion of God that may surprise us. When you think about God, I'm not sure what immediately comes to your mind. I know when I think of God, I think of His omnipotence, His power. I think of His holiness. I think of His authority, His righteousness, His justice. I think of verses like Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, where it says, He is the rock. His work is perfect. All His ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is He. I love the verse Malachi 3 and verse 6 that describes God as, I am the Lord, I change not. I like verses like Isaiah 42 and verse 8, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory do I not give to another, nor my praise to graven images. I like Jeremiah 32 and verse 17, Ah, Lord God, thou hast made the heavens and the earth by thy great power and by thy stretched out arm, and there's nothing too hard for thee. Boy, those are the verses that I think of when I think of God. My dad was a farmer, and growing up, uh, I always uh, thought that my dad could do just about anything. Uh, He was a man that started farming when he was 15 years old, depression years, and quit school after eighth grade, and started farming on his own, and and uh, working the land and milking cows. And growing up, my dad was, was not a, a large man in the sense of his height or his weight, but he was a strong man. And I just saw my dad do some amazing things because of that strength that he had. His hands were huge, about twice the size of mine. When you shook hands with my dad, your hand kind of disappeared as you shook his hand. His ring size was twice the size of mine. He was just a man that had this this strong grip and and just seemingly could do about anything. My dad endured a lot of pain in his life. When he was 13 years old, all of his teeth abscessed in his mouth at the same time. And my grandmother told me that they took him to the dentist and the dentist pulled out all of his teeth on the same day without any painkillers. 13 years old. When my dad was a teenager, some of the local boys would play football on Sunday afternoons. Well, my grandfather had a, had a rule that there was to be nothing extra on Sunday. That was the Lord's Day, and you'd go to church, and when you came home from church, you were to rest and think about the sermons and so on. And, and so my grandfather did not allow anything to be done on Sunday other than the chores, the things that had to be done, like milking the cows and so on. But all the boys were playing football on Sunday afternoon. And so my dad, one Sunday afternoon, snuck off. And he went to play football in a little town called Pipersville, about three miles from our farm. And during that football game, he got tackled and his knees gave way. And and, uh, he tore all the ligaments in his knees. And he had to practically crawl home. And when he got home, my grandfather said, well, be sure your sin will find you out. And my dad never had those knees repaired. 
And as he got into his late 30s and 40s, the arthritis sort of set in. And by the time they finally operated on his knees and did knee replacements, there was really nothing there. He was just bone on bone. And, and during the final knee replacement surgery, he got a blood clot on his spine. And, and uh, they had to uh, go into through his back and remove a lot of the muscles in order to get to this clot. And after the surgery, he was left uh, basically unable to walk, unable to really move his lower extremities. And the doctor said he would never walk again, never drive a car again. But through a lot of prayer and just persistence, my dad began to get feeling back in his legs and, and uh, began to uh, learn to walk again and, and function again. And God did some miracles there. My dad on his deathbed, he died of a, a number of things, really. He had a, a twisted colon. And so uh, they never could see it on x-rays. It would twist and then it would untwist. And it seemed like every time they took an x-ray, it looked fine. But he had this tremendous pain from time to time and eventually died of congestive heart failure. And he was in so much pain that last week of his life that the doctors put him on a morphine pump. But he never used it. My dad just had this strong tolerance of, of pain and he had gone through so many things in his life that it was just kind of normal to kind of endure all of those things. And when I think of my dad, that's, that's kind of what I think of, just a strong man, a, a man that could do anything, a man that could endure all of this pain throughout his life. But when I was 13 years old, I was starting to play sports at school and I'd made the football team as a freshman and and uh, I came home one night after practice and my dad had already gone to the barn to start the milking. And my mom had kept my supper there in the oven and I pulled out that plate. My mom was cleaning up some things in the, in the kitchen and, and I sat down to eat. And I don't remember the conversation exactly, but I had kind of an attitude. And I said something to my mom that, that uh, kind of put her down and lifted me up and and uh, my mom didn't take too well to that. And she came over to that table and she grabbed me by the arm and she lifted me out of my seat. Now, my mom barely weighed 100 pounds, but she was pretty strong too. And she jerked me out of that seat and she began to scold me. And I was kind of like, you can't tell me what to do. You know, I'm a teenager. I play football, you know, I'm bigger than you are. And all of a sudden she bent me over and she began to spank me. I'm a teenager, and she's spanking me, and it hurt, but I wasn't about to let her know it hurt, and finally, she kind of got tired, I guess, and she straightened me up, and I looked at her, and I went, huh, like, is that the best you got? When I did that, she looked at me, and she said, you go see your dad. Well, now, dad was a little different proposition, and I remember going slowly out to the barn. It was about 100 yards from the house to the barn, and I took my time. And I knew my dad would be on one end of that barn starting the milking, and so I decided to go in the door on the other side of that barn. And I moved it back very quietly so he wouldn't hear me coming. And I got inside the barn. The cows were all in their stalls along the side, and I walked down the middle, and my dad was way at that other end of the barn, and he was, he was milking a cow. He had his back to me, and he was uh, holding the machine on to make sure that she got completely milked out, and, and he was kind of crouched down there, and I just stood, and I waited. 
I had been taught as a little boy, never bother your father when he's working because always working around animals and machines, things can happen if you surprise someone or disturb something. And so I just waited. I didn't care if he worked until he died that night because I was in trouble. And pretty soon he, he took that milker off the cow and he stood up and his back still to me and he, he gathered those the milking machine and all those parts and he turned around and tears were coming down his face. And he set that milking machine down at my feet. And he looked at me and he said, John, your sin, your sin makes me so sick. And he just began to weep. My dad never laid a hand on me that night. He never spanked me. He never grounded me. He never took anything away. He just stood there and wept. And I'm telling you, there were many nights as a teenager, when those tears kept me out of trouble. My friends would say, hey, John, come, come after a game. They'd say, come over, we're having a party. And I'd say, no, no, I got, I got to get home. And I wouldn't tell them why. Because inside, I, I kind of wanted to be with my friends, and I wanted to go to some of those parties, and I wanted to do some of those things that kids were doing, but I'd always see those tears. And I'd say, I don't ever want to see those again. Jesus wept. Now we have to ask ourselves, why? Why did Jesus in this passage weep? Now I want to look tonight at three convicting causes of this emotion in the heart of our Savior. I believe first the cause was the enemy of death. His friend, Lazarus, has died. We read about that in the first part of the chapter, as Lazarus, a good friend of the Lord Jesus, who lived with his sisters, Mary and Martha, takes ill. And Mary and Martha sent word to Jesus. They said, he whom thou lovest is sick. And they no doubt thought that Jesus would come and heal their brother. He, they knew he had the power to do that. But as we read in the early part of chapter 11, Jesus did nothing upon hearing the news. He abode still in the same place where he was. No doubt Mary and Martha were disappointed. They wondered what would be the reason that Jesus did not come and help them and, and, and solve the problem as they knew he could do. And finally, Lazarus dies, according to verse 14. And now, four days later, Jesus shows up in Bethany. And they approach the grave, and the Bible says that Jesus wept. I believe Jesus wept in part because of the enemy of death. You see, death is not something that God produces. God is not the author of death. God eternally lives. And so God is not the author of death. In Revelation 1 and verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, which is, which was, and which is to come. The Almighty. In Jeremiah chapter 10, the Bible says the Lord is the true God. He's the living God. He's the everlasting King. In Matthew 16 and verse 16, whom, say that I am, whom do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15, Paul tells Timothy, if I tarry long, 
that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, the church of the living God. So death is not the plan of God. Death is the plan of Satan. The thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. What did Jesus say in John 8 and verse 44 regarding the devil? He said he is a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth. So death is the enemy of God. And because of sin, death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. This is why in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the Bible declares the last enemy to be destroyed is death. One day there'll be no more death. One day Jesus Christ will return and we will go to heaven where we will live for eternity and, and, and death will be no more. One day this enemy will be destroyed once and for all. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now Jesus loved Martha. Jesus loved Mary. Jesus loved Lazarus. Because Lazarus has died, Jesus weeps. No doubt in part caused by the sorrow that he feels at that moment as Lazarus is now separated from his loved ones, separated from even Christ himself temporarily. We understand that, don't we? We've all stood at a graveside. We've all attended a funeral. We've all had loved ones and friends that have passed on, and we understand the emotion that accompanies that moment of death. Even when we know our loved ones or friends are with the Lord, there's still that sadness as death comes and takes our loved one away, and we are separated temporarily from them. This past September, my, my mother passed away, and she was 94 years old, lived a wonderful life, and, and knew the Lord most of those years, got saved very young in her life, and lived for God. She was a church secretary in her later years, and I think served almost 40 years as the church secretary, worked until she was 88 years old as the church secretary, and uh, then God allowed her to move out with us, us here in California. And those last years of her life were difficult as her mind began to deteriorate and she suffered from dementia. And I remember one time I, 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 was, uh, I was trying to wake her up. She was kind of curled up in a, in a lazy boy recliner and she was uh, uh, sleeping. And I, I, I touched her shoulder and I said, Mom, Mom. And, and, and she never opened her eyes. She just kind of was all curled up in her blanket and, and, and without opening her eyes, she said, no. Not today, not tomorrow. <laughs> she didn't want to be bothered. Just let me sleep. I don't want to talk to you. I don't want to see you. I don't want to be with you today or tomorrow. <laughs> she just wanted to sleep. And I thought when she died, when Jesus touched her shoulder and said, Eunice, it's time to come home. She didn't say, no, not today, not tomorrow. She probably looked at Jesus and said, where have you been? <laughs> I've been waiting for you. I'm ready to go, right? But to us, 
Even at her funeral, I, I looked at her body there in the casket and 94 years old and many of my years growing up with my mom and understanding what she was all about. There's a sorrow there. Oh, I know I'll see her again. I know she's now with my dad and many of my relatives and loved ones in heaven, but, but uh, there's still that sorrow. And I believe that Jesus here is, uh, is, is weeping because of the enemy of death. But I believe there's a deeper reason, don't you? He's weeping here because of the evil of disbelief. Now, by the time we get to John chapter 11, we gotta kinda put this chapter in context. And if we stay just in the chronological events of the book of John, and we know that the Gospels record different events about the life of Christ, they're not all recorded in every Gospel, but if you just stay in the book of John, you find that in chapter 2 of John, Jesus turns the water into wine, doesn't he? That's his first public miracle. And, and Jesus is kind of announced at that point as the promised Messiah, as he does this miracle. And so they had seen that. They understood what he could do miraculously, powerfully. In chapter 4, he brought hope to the Samaritan woman. You remember the story of the woman at the well and Jesus speaks with her and, 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 and draws her to himself and that woman is wonderfully saved and she goes back into the city and tells the men what, what she has experienced and said, come see a man that told me all things that ever I did. And, and uh, they come out and they meet Jesus and Jesus stays for several more days and multitudes of people are saved because of the conversion of this Samaritan woman. In John chapter 4, he heals the nobleman's son. In John chapter 5, he heals a lame man that has sat by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years. And suddenly he stands and is able to walk. In John chapter 6, he feeds 5,000 men plus the women and the children with just five loaves and two fishes. An amazing miracle that is told in all four of the Gospels. In John chapter 6, he walks on the water, as we saw last night, and he calms the storm, he stills the waves. In John chapter uh, 8, he forgives the adulterous woman. In John chapter 9, he heals a blind man who's been blind since his birth. But now we come to chapter 11. And look at verse number 7 here in our text of chapter 11. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. In other words, he's received word that Lazarus is sick. So now after two days, he says, let's return to Bethany. Verse eight, his disciples send him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of this world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth not, because there's no light in him. These things said he, and after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may awake him out of sleep. Then said his disciples, Lord, if he sleep, he shall do well. Howbeit Jesus spake of his death. But they thought that he had spoken of taking of rest in sleep. Then said Jesus unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I'm glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent ye may believe. 
You see, these disciples were filled with doubt. These disciples were filled with unbelief. And Jesus is telling them, this sickness is not unto death. It's for the glory of God. And we're going to go back there and we're going to raise this man from the dead. But the disciples did not believe that he actually could. In fact, we go down to verse 23. As, as Jesus comes into town, Jesus said to Martha in verse 23, uh, He saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? These people are struggling with believing. They're, they're not certain that Jesus can actually raise this man from the dead. And, and we go to verse 37. As they come to this grave now, in verse 37, and some of them said, Could not this man, which opened the eyes of the blind, have caused that even this man should not have died? Jesus, therefore, again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, and a stone lay upon it. Why was his heart so heavy? Why is he groaning within himself? Why in verse 35 is he weeping? Well, not only because of the enemy of death, but the evil of disbelief. You know, it's common for us to say things like, well, I just don't believe that could ever happen. I just don't think that's possible. I'm not sure uh, if that could ever really take place. I, I'll believe it when I see it. We, we think about someone maybe who needs to be saved, and they're hard-hearted, and they've resisted the gospel, and we say, oh, I don't think that person's ever going to get saved. I mean, we've prayed for him, and we've invited him, and, and we've witnessed to him, but he's just, he's just indifferent. He doesn't want to hear it. I just don't think that person could ever get saved. I just don't think God could, is really going to give us the building that we need. or I just don't think we can really support any more missionaries. I just don't believe that. Well, you know, all of that, all of those statements are harbored in the sin of unbelief. When we say that's not possible, when we say I, 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 I don't think that'll happen, when we say I, I'll, I'll believe it when we see it, those things are harbored in the sin, in the heart of unbelief. Hebrews 3, 12 says, Take heed, brethren, lest any of you be hardened through the, the evil heart of unbelief. God calls unbelief evil. In, in Mark chapter 9, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to them that believe. God hasn't lost his power. God isn't dead. God hasn't somehow become incapacitated. Uh, God is not weak and weary of doing great things today. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And yet people say, well, I just don't see it. I, I just don't, I, I don't see it. Well, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We may not know how that person's going to get saved, or we don't know how God's going to provide our needs. We don't know how God is going to miraculously give us a, a larger facility to meet in. We can't see it, but all things are possible to them that believe. 
He that doubteth is damned if he eat because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And I believe as Jesus comes to this, this grave, this moment in time, and he sees these people, his disciples, Mary and Martha, the crowd of Jews that had gathered, all of them thought, this is a hopeless situation. Jesus didn't come on time. He messed up. We told him to come, but he didn't come. He missed an opportunity to heal Lazarus. It's hopeless. You know, we've, we've already put him in the grave. The stone is already sealed. The corruption has already begun. It's too late. Jesus weeps because of the evidence of disbelief, which leads to a third cause, I believe, and that's the evidence of a distrust. Now, as human beings, we struggle with the miraculous because we don't have that power. We can only do things that humanly are possible. We, we only have the capacity to do what we can do, what we can control. And the miraculous is out of our control. The miraculous is, is in, a, in, a, in a tier way above us. We, we're not God. We're limited. We're dust. We're frail. And while God has given us opportunities and God has given us personalities and God has given us gifts to use, we know that we're limited. We may want someone to get saved, but God has to save them. We, we may want God to provide a need, but we're working as hard as we can to provide, but, but God's going to have to come through. And so when we talk about the miraculous, oftentimes we look at ourselves and our resources and we think, well, there's nothing I can do. And sometimes we think, I'm not sure God can do anything either. Our lack of trust, our lack of putting our confidence in Him grieves Him. Did you know that God doesn't always answer our prayers the way we pray them? God sometimes says no to our prayers. But if you wait long enough, oftentimes that no later becomes a greater yes. But we get frustrated because we lose our trust in him when he says no. We lose our trust in him when he says wait. We lose our trust in him when time goes by. And, and, and even in this situation, when Jesus initially said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. Well, what does that mean? We just want Lazarus to get well. We don't want Lazarus to die. We see it from our human perspective, and we're saying, God, solve the problem. God, here it is. Lazarus is sick. You can do something about it. Do it. But God says, no, I have a greater plan my ways are higher than your ways my thoughts are not your thoughts and when that happens we find our trust beginning to erode a little bit because we can't see what god is doing a number of years ago i was preaching at a camp up in wyoming up in the mountains and i was there for two weeks two weeks of teen camp back to back and and uh, there really was no plan for the weekend when I scheduled the meeting. It was, the camp was way up in the mountains. It took about 45 minutes 
to get up the mountain to a, a dirt logging road. And, and uh, the closest phone at that time was 45 minutes down that road at a, at a, at a little restaurant there. And uh, we didn't have cell phones. And, and, and so there was really no contact. Once you started up that dirt road, you were going out of civilization. And so I had heard about all this. It was my first time at that camp. And, and I just decided, you know, I'll just stay there for the whole two weeks and, and not try to tackle that road. And, and uh, so the first week came and went, and we had a great week. And the, the churches were picking up their young people on Saturday morning, and vans began to come up the road and pick up their teens. And, and I was saying goodbye to them and standing on, on a porch there in front of the dining facility. And a pastor <clears throat> had come to pick up his kids from Lander, Wyoming, about, about 200 miles away. And uh, he uh, walked up on that porch and he said, uh, Brother Getch, he said, we've never met. And he shook my hand and introduced himself. And he said, boy, I can tell from just the way our kids are acting and the way they're talking that it's been a good week. And he said, I just want to thank you for coming all this way out here to preach to our kids. And he said, it's obvious that God's done some things. And I said, well, we've really had a good week. And, and uh, your kids have been a blessing. And there have been a lot of decisions. And he said, uh, what are you doing this weekend? And I said, well, as far as I know, I'm just staying here. I don't know what the camp staff does, if they have a service up here, if they go down to the little town down below and go to the church there. I said, I, I just kind of follow along with them. And he said, would you be willing to come preach at my church? And I said, well, where is it? He said, well, we're in Lander. I said, how far away is that? He said, 200 miles. And I said, he said, uh, you, you, could, you could leave here at, at daybreak and get to our place by 10 o'clock. Our service is at 10, Sunday school. And, and uh, he said, we'll feed you. And, and you can preach Sunday night and still get back here before it gets too late. I said, well, if the camp director is okay with that, I'd be glad to do that. And so we worked it all out. And Sunday morning, I got in my vehicle and headed down that dirt road and made it to Lander, Wyoming for the Sunday morning services. And we had a good time, not a large church by any means, but maybe, maybe 75 people or so, and, and uh, just had a good time with those folks. And the pastor lived right on the property, and we went over to his house and had a meal. And after we got done eating, he said, uh, Brother Gatch, what do you want to do this afternoon? He said, uh, I know you like to get a little exercise. He said, we have a, a canyon. Uh, our town's actually in a canyon. And he said, this canyon runs for miles, and it's beautiful. And uh, we, we could hike the canyon this afternoon. We could hike for an hour. We could hike for three hours, whatever, whatever you'd prefer. And I said, well, Pastor, I really didn't bring any change of clothes. I just had my church clothes. He said, oh, I got clothes you can wear. And I said, okay, whatever. I'm glad to. Sounds good. So he went back to the room there and got some clothes for me and got me all outfitted with hiking boots. And I mean, the whole deal. He comes out in camouflage. He's got two weapons strapped to his side. I'm thinking, whoa, we're, we're, we're going to go conquer the world here, you know. He had been a Marine, or I guess once you're a Marine, you're always a Marine, you know, and he was, he was a gung-ho for this thing. And we started hiking, and I mean, it was beautiful. This canyon, as you got out of town, it became very narrow, and the walls were, were, were lining that canyon, were beautiful. I mean, the rock formations... The, the, there really wasn't a trail. It was just kind of along our, our river as we were hiking there. And wildlife's jumping everywhere. I mean, we're seeing deer and all kinds of things there. And I'm just really enjoying this. And he's, he's ahead of me about maybe 15 feet as we're hiking along there through some brush and different things. And, 
And uh, we're hiking along this river, as I said. Well, you know, you get pretty engaged in a hike like that. It's, it's somewhat strenuous, and you're, you're kind of make your way. And, and, and after we had hiked about an hour and a half, I noticed the river was gone. And I thought, how did that happen? There's no outlet. The river didn't dry up or go in the same direction the river's going. It, was a, it wasn't a, a wide river, but it was, you could tell it was somewhat uh, uh, deep and the water was running quickly. And I thought, what, what happened to the river? And I said, Pastor, what happened to the river? And he kind of looked over his shoulder and he said, oh, don't worry about it. We'll see it again. And I thought, okay, so we kept hiking. We hiked about another mile and a half. And all of a sudden, the river was back. And I said, Pastor, stop. <laughs> I, I, I have a question. I, I'm tired, but I'm not hallucinating. I know that. Now, there was a river, and now there's not, and then there wasn't a river, and now there's a river again. Please explain this to me. He said, Brother Gadge, the river was here the whole time. It just runs underground for about a mile and a half. You know, for the rest of that hike, I could not get that out of my mind. Because that's like God. Oftentimes you can see what he's doing. You see someone get saved. You see God provide a need. You see God answer a prayer. But then there are times where you're doing the same things, serving God, being faithful, but you can't see what God's doing. And, and if you're not careful, you begin to doubt in those moments. And you think, did God leave us? Did God forsake us? Are we all of a sudden on our own here? But he's there. Sometimes you just can't see him. And we have to be careful that we don't hit that point of distrust in the God that we serve. Sometimes we can see him. His hand, sometimes we can't. But our distrust will bring tears to his eyes. He's a trustworthy God. He's a believable God. He is God. And we can trust him. We can follow him by faith. Jesus wept. Why? Well, certainly because of the enemy of death. But no doubt more so because of the enemy of death of disbelief, the evidence of a distrust in God. May we tonight never lose our confidence, our faith in Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're here tonight and you've never been saved, you might wonder, can God save me? Does God really love me? Why would he love me? Look, the Bible says he loves you. The Bible says he cares about your soul. The Bible says he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants all to come to repentance. So trust him. Believe on him. Christian, you can trust him in times of sickness. You can trust him when relationships go south. You can believe him even when you can't see what he's doing. He's trustworthy. Keep your eyes focused on his word not on what you can see physically. I never wanted to see my dad ever weep again over my sin. 
how much more should I not want my life in some way bring tears to the one who saved me, to the one who has given me everything for life and for all of eternity? Let's pray together. Father, this is a a challenging little statement here that Jesus wept. And it makes us wonder why. And tonight we've tried to expose some reasons why Jesus would have tears in his eyes. It wasn't simply a a sniffle or a, a quick second of grief. He wept. There was a, a physical display of weeping that others saw and noticed. Lord, I pray tonight that it would not be something in our lives that you would see of unbelief or distrust that would cause you to weep over our lives tonight. May rather you look at this congregation and us as individuals and rejoice because we're being faithful, rejoice because we're being obedient, rejoice when when someone gets saved, as it says, even the angels rejoice. And so, Lord, work in our hearts tonight. As our heads are bowed and eyes are closed, maybe you're here tonight without Christ as your Savior. Can I tell you, God loves you. There's a tear in his eye tonight because of of, of the fact that you're not saved. He wants you to be in heaven. He doesn't want you to be in hell forever. And he will save you tonight if you'll trust him as your Savior. Christian, is there disbelief tonight? Is there distrust? Have you allowed yourself to focus on the things of this life that seem to be going in a difficult way? Put your eyes back on the Lord. Turn your eyes back to him. You can trust him. You can follow him, even when you can't see him or his hand at work.